Well, hey, look at you. Great job. Look at that. Think of all the places you could be this morning. And here you are. You know, I'm from North Dakota. I noticed uh, Fargo yesterday, 30 below wind chill, so I'm happy to be here. You know, good deal, good deal. So, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of dive into something. It's complex. It's multi-layered, and I know you're up to it. So, uh, we're gonna do a lot of things really quickly this morning. And, uh, and the stuff we're gonna look at has to do with barriers. Barriers to change. Particular climates and cultures that can affect our ability to change or grow. And, uh, and when we get into this stuff, we're not talking either or. We're talking about emphasis. Which foot do you lead with? All parts of the recipe, but are some things being left out? Or imagine a, a recipe where one spice is way too strong and so it drowns out everything else. All right, you with me? All right, so here's the theme, stinking thinking, how bad religion spoils the good news. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, here's our big idea. By the way, now on your, on your outline, um, we're actually going to start once we get past the big idea, we're going to start at the end and go forward. So uh, Caleb's up there running the uh, PowerPoint, so I mention that so you can thank him for allowing the Lord to work miraculously in his life and track with this chaos that we're going to kind of bring. And uh, also, there's a part in there that says products. We're going to skip that. Now, I'm just telling that for some of you who are analytical, so you don't have apoplexy on the way home, wondering what, what are those six things. We're just gonna, we're gonna obliterate them all together, okay? So, uh, let's start with the big idea. Here it is. We sometimes, intentionally, and often unwittingly, create an environment that cannot sustain what we hope for. Life skill includes creating climates that support our life goals. When the environment isn't in harmony with our goals, the environment becomes toxic. Toxic. You don't grow pineapples in North Dakota. And there are some things you can't grow in your life unless the climate of your life is conducive to that growth. So we're going to learn about what what a barrier might be. We're going to learn an option to that barrier. And in the process, we're going to learn what kind of church journey's trying to be. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us with all this. Lord, uh, we want you to help us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning to grasp the depth of your love and the significance of what you want to do in our lives as a reflection, as a trophy of your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's start with why does it matter. Every, every person sits, sits in a chair and wonders, why do I need to know that? 
So in order to do this, we're going to use a little uh, illustration. And I've asked one of the most intriguing women I know, my wife Marcy, to help me out. It's going to involve two coats. And I just want to tell you that this illustration cost me a trip to Macy's and a coat. So so I'm not taking it lightly, don't you? All right? Why does it matter? So just follow this with me a little bit, would you? Let's talk about how you and I change. From birth, like Lewis and Clark, we begin to navigate life and look for waterways and passages that will keep us safe and lead us to goals we desire. At an early age, if not cognitively, certainly experientially and emotionally, we discovered the world, including our family of origin, extended relationships, and even our daily lives are fraught with dangers, dangers like humiliation, rejection, and injury of all sorts. Like the hobbits on a journey, we search for a route that includes safety. Our motive is righteous. Self-preservation is built into our human DNA. So we don't step off the roof of the Bozeman Hotel or jump off the ski lift halfway up or sit down in the middle of I-90 because we value survival. To survive, we began to make navigational choices at a young age. Will Smith, the actor, in an interview spoke of the movie producer Michael Mann who said that at 18 he was rejected by the girl he loved. Remember, puppy love is real to a puppy. And so he decided he was rejected because he was not good enough. And he determined he would never not be good enough again. And so, perhaps growing up in searing poverty, I decide that I love shopping. Not shopping because I'm materialistic, because it gets, but rather because it gets me out into humanity and I can feel like I'm as worthy as everyone else. Or having lived in an abusive family, I develop a quiet demeanor. Not because maybe I'm actually quiet, but because I've learned that to openly communicate isn't an act of love, but rather will deeply hurt and maybe imprison someone I love. And so... My act of not communicating is an act of love. Or I become obese, and with it comes a delightful sense of humor. Or I grew up in a family of of performance culture, and so I learn early on how to please other people. Or I go through an almost debilitating episode of humiliation, and I find that really I love my own company the best, and I become quiet and reserved and withdrawn. Or I grow up in a family where a parent decides to favor one over the other. And in order for me to really survive, I develop a workaholic mentality to show everyone that I am equal. Remember, the motivation for this is righteous. It is about survival. And so, I start to put on a white coat. An expensive Macy's white coat. These traits have all the appearance of me. People say, oh, she just loves to shop, or he's just quiet, or, oh, she is the funniest person I know. By this time, however, I'm beginning to make other choices. Not only have I put on a white coat, I start to make choices that we call sin, and I introduce things into my life that are cancerous and bring death. 
like a relative of mine who in a drunken state came home to make a sandwich and spread soldering compound on his bread and got very sick. Only, actually, there's three forms of this cancer, fundamentally, moral impurity, temporal values, or ego gratification. But they come with some abrasive traits like selfish anger, deception, or abuse. And so I began to put on a black coat. But if I'm lucky, eventually something happens, like the prodigal son who came to himself, or Bill Jaworski, the very successful lawyer son of Leon Jaworski, the Watergate judge, who came home from a ski trip and was met by his wife who asked him to come into the den where she asked him for a divorce. Whatever it is, something shows me that this isn't just about right or wrong, but good and bad, and I open the door to some bad things that give me death. I'm seeding a crop of weeds, but the gospel is good news. And so I meet Christ and I confess I need him and I receive his forgiveness and his release. And and new life, like a crop of wheat breaking through the spring soil, begins to appear. Now here, often the typical church presentation of the gospel stops. All that's left, as I began to take off my black coat... All that's left is to come to church, join a small group, give in the offering, and volunteer for something. But Romans reminds us that salvation is not just about forgiveness, but a new order of living. It is not just a clear passport to heaven, but learning to live in a new land. And I still have on my white coat. And if there was something disruptive in taking off my black coat, removing the white coat can be surrounded by terror. It protects me. And from my vantage point, as well as from the vantage point of others, it is, well, it's me. For the characteristics of the white coat are entwined and tentacled into my perceived identity. And after all, often I have been wily enough to structure my reality so that these coping tactics appear to work for me. But if entering the kingdom involves taking off a black coat, thriving in the kingdom involves shedding the white coat. Even if the purpose of that white coat was simply to protect me from pain or being sinned against. So Ann Taylor writes in her novel, Once upon a time there was a woman who discovered she had turned into the wrong person. She was 53 years old by then, a grandmother wide and soft and dimpled with two short wings of dry, fair hair, flaring almost horizontally from a center part, laugh lines at the corners of her eyes, a loose and colorful style of dress edging dangerously close to bag lady. Give her credit. Most people at her age would say it was too late to make any changes. What's done is done, they would say. No use trying to alter things at this late date. It did occur to Rebecca to say that, but she didn't. Thank you, Marcy. If I decide to take off the white coat to reveal and discover me, the true me, the me Jesus created, the me Jesus loved and died for, actually the only me, Because 
He doesn't see the rest because it's not me. But if I decide to take off this white coat, I will go through a season of instability and vulnerability, even struggling to define what is normal. For example, let's say that one of my coping skills was to hide how I actually feel about things, not to speak, not to risk rejection. But I decide I'm being disloyal to myself, and so I begin to take off my white coat. And I go to a social gathering, and some topic comes up. Let's say politics. And I decide I'm just going to say what I actually feel about it. But on the way home, I wonder to myself, did I talk too long? Did I talk too much? Was I too loud? Why wasn't I just silent? Perhaps I came across pushy or dogmatic. Maybe someone will never invite me back. Maybe I've offended someone. A woman I've worked with in another state said to me recently, I am now in a state in my process of change where I can't define what is normal because I've never lived there. It feels awkward, out of sync. I think to myself, this can't work. It's kind of like uh, I used to play tennis a little bit. And uh, I held a tennis racket like a fly swatter. Then I actually played tennis with a tennis player. And he says, here, here, let me show you this. And he repositions the tennis racket in my hand. And, you know, they hold it like a hatchet. Well, a few swings of that, I thought, this, this can't be right. It's the same when you and I try to change things that are deeply bedded in our life. And yet... I feel the promise that something is happening and it is a good feeling and energy is coming into my life and perhaps I will look into the mirror and not see the shadow self I created but the real me that Jesus created and it is emerging and as it happens I see the reflection of Christ for He became me and I was created in His image so that the more me I become the more like Christ I become and loyalty and stewardship of this His creation is righteous. Now let me ask you, what kind of climate would need to exist for you and I to have the courage to be that vulnerable, to take that kind of risk? What kind of climate would preserve and protect me And support me as I go through the instability of this kind of change as I take off my black coat and then take off my white coat. Now we're going to talk about church for a little bit because that's the climate we're looking at. So we've got like two options. Remember, they're not either or. We're talking about emphasis and which foot to lead with. The first option is what I'm just going to call typical church. Now, I've lived my whole life in typical church. My mom was a Sunday school superintendent. She was the piano player for the morning worship services. For all I know, I was born on the back pew. I I don't ever remember... (laughs) I don't ever remember not being in church. The typical church 
has many good people in it, often with good motives. And it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. But if we're talking about the change I just described, then I want to show you why typical church can't get it done. Because typical church is based upon this. It is a culture of ideas. Now, there's three realities to a culture of ideas, and we're just going to track that for a little bit. All right, let's take a breath. Are you with me? All right. Let's have a look. Here's a culture of ideas. Now, this is the primary model of the Western church. It comes out of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. The result of that was that all reality is tested and experienced through reason. We are part of the West, so the Western church began to embrace this view of reality. As we embrace this view of reality, it carries three features. Number one, it is a culture of proposition. A culture of proposition. It has to do with systems and doctrines and knowledge and order. People are defined on the basis of what they believe. They're branded that way. A byproduct is the church is turned into a classroom. We use a developmental model of teaching, which promises abstract general knowledge. We have classes. You come. You get three-ring notebooks. You take notes. You go home. You, you put them on a shelf. You, you walk by a month later says, I, I should do something about that. And then the month later, you dust it, and you said, I, I should do something about that. Eventually, you put it away so you don't have to live with the guilt that I should do something about that. That's a propositional culture. For example, if you were to ask a group of church leaders... How do you get new believers in Christ grounded and founded? They would almost entirely use this model. They would say, well, we just, we need to get them into a class and get them, get them really grounded in some essential doctrines and teach them how to study the Bible. Now, uh, please hear what I'm going to say to you now. What I just said is not bad advice. It's just not biblical. The Bible says, add to your faith virtue, and then add to your virtue knowledge. If you and I start adding to our faith knowledge before we add virtue, that knowledge so taints and distorts both the nature of God and how we relate to Him that the knowledge becomes a curse, not a blessing. Add to your faith virtue, and then virtue knowledge. So in this culture proposition, we tend to add to our faith knowledge. A Christian leader, prominent, well-known throughout the world, said, the primary responsibility of the church is to defend truth. This culture of proposition can be summed up in a parenting model of because I said so. That works all right if you're young and dependent. But when you begin to grow and you want to enter into interrelational models, because I said so doesn't work. At least it doesn't work for me. 
Now, the ultimate result of this propositional culture is that the Bible becomes our Christ. But Jesus said, may I repeat? But Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find life. But life is only found in me. Now we're coming to my favorite part. Propositional cultures lead to cultures of sureness. The church becomes an expert on everything. Feel it ha- and it feels it has the right to tell you. In fact, this culture of sureness becomes one of the primary reasons people who are not part of a church culture don't want to be. They find this feature dismissive, often angry, certainly dishonoring, and very unresponsive. The culture of sureness is what I call the security blanket model of church life. We'll take care of you. In a culture of sureness, it is our job as you walk through the door to tell you what to believe and what to do. In fact, you walk through the door with a high probability of wrongness. Low commitment is when you don't do what we tell you to do. And you don't actually need a very vital relationship with the Lord. You don't need to hear from Him because we'll tell you what He's saying. And sometimes you even buy into that little contract because you decide you don't have to be responsible to hear the voice of the Lord. You don't have to be responsible to grow. We'll take care of that for you. This diminishes responsibility and allows us to abdicate responsibility so we do not grow. Now, there are some features about a culture of sureness. One is it's a telling culture. Now, the thing about a telling culture is it's all one way. And to me, it gets a little wearisome. Uh, When I became a believer, when I became a Christ follower, I did not automatically, with that choice, give the other one billion Christ followers in the world the freedom to speak into my life at their whim. You got that? But in a culture of sureness, we get people driving around recklessly telling everybody what they ought to do. Not just up here, but all over the place. There are some arenas of my life that you require a righteous standing if you're going to speak into those arenas. You'll have to have relationship with me. It's not about whether you're right or not. It's about whether you have a righteous standing or not. Telling cultures tend to ignore that, and so they're always violating boundaries. So there's a telling culture. Now... Oh, let's let's do some drawing, shall we? Now, the other, the next feature of this is what I call uh, absolute 
creep. That's not a person. <laughs> Here's what happens. Absolutes are ideas that are absolutely true without any fudging. So let's just say for the sake of, uh, of illustration that there are six absolutes. We're just throwing out a number. Like the deity of Christ is an absolute. The, uh, the authority and greatness of God is an absolute. Uh, that we should live holy lives is an absolute. All right? Now let's try absolute creep. So let's take holy lives. All right, we should be living holy lives. All right, what does that mean? Well, it means you need to keep good company. So we've got our absolutes. We've extended them now. Well, if you should keep good company, then you should avoid bad company. All right? You with me so far? So now we got our absolutes. Uh, they're kind of shooting out there a little ways, aren't they? Now, you know what? I've discovered that bad company often hangs around pool halls. Therefore, pool is a sin. Isn't that clever? I tell you, I grew up in that. Let's do one more. God is holy and to be worshipped. All right, hey, we're, we're with you there on that. Because of His holiness and His grandeur and His majesty, as we worship Him, we ought to worship Him with dignity and appropriateness. Therefore, really, hymns, and how you dress is pretty important when you come into his presence. Which means that these newfangled worship choruses and once in a while so one of you wearing a hat is very disrespectful. To God. Obviously, it is wrong. Notice how that works? We just kind of creep our absolutes. Now, now here's the part that bugs me. If you want to have a discussion about with somebody about appropriate dress out here, you know where they go? They drag you here. Now, you know what happens when that occurs? The discussion's over. It's obvious they're not interested in any discussion. God has spoken. And aren't they lucky it was through their voice? Now, my dear friends, 
This kind of thing, I'm going to say this quietly because I, last night I was too worked up and I, I got home and I thought I, I wasn't quiet enough in my voice. This is abusive. Because it doesn't let you hear from God yourself and make choices yourself. And no culture is safe where there is not freedom. But this becomes part of the culture of sureness. Now there's another thing that's part of this culture. I call it a technical reading of the scriptures. Now we've already agreed. We, we believe in the inspiration authority of scriptures. Let me give you an example of a technical reading of scripture. The Bible says that if you're going to be in leadership within the church of Christ, you need to have your own family in order. You need to be able to rule in your own family. And so the application is often made that, uh, hey, if you're having trouble with your husband or wife or, man, your kids are in trouble, then really you ought to just step out of any kind of ministry until you get that fixed up. Now, you know, that looks like common sense to you and me, doesn't it? If I just take a technical reading. So let me give you an example of how that gets a little confusing. So nobody in the world since the day of Christ has preached the gospel to more people than Billy Graham. In the heyday of his ministry, when 100,000 people were coming to, coming to crusades in a given night, he invited some of the top evangelical Christian leaders from around the world to meet at his house in North Carolina. Just prior to their arrival, his wife Ruth, going through the genes of one of his sons, Franklin, discovered pot. Frustrated and angry at Franklin and Ned's predisposition to hallucinogenic activity, she took it, went down to their fireplace, stoked it up, and threw it in. <laughs> However, because of the change of seasons, the flu had not been opened. And in the ensuing moments, the house of Billy and Ruth Graham filled with the sweet aroma of marijuana just as these prominent Christian leaders arrived at the house. All the while, you would think, given the immense embarrassment of the parents, Franklin and Ned would be seeing the error of their ways and waiting for an opportunity to apologize. But in fact, they were upstairs laughing hilariously at the predicament of their parents. I'm not saying those scriptures aren't true. Well, when you start buckling the Bible down into these technical readings, it starts getting really divorced with life. Actual reality. But then the person out of the culture of sureness will come and say, yes, but whatever the Bible says. Now listen, don't make me choose between my belief and conviction and the authority and inspiration of the world word and what I see in real life. They must find a way to mesh. I'm not checking my brain at the door. So there's the technical reading of the scripture, which ultimately leads us to forced clarity. You know, this book really 
If clarity was what was on God's mind, some systemic order, I could have done a whole lot better than the Almighty. Have you read this thing? I mean, Leviticus, what in the world? I mean, I'll write a chapter or two on some of the, some of the worship processes and sacrifices of Israel, but an entire book of where you slit the cow and kill it and the lamb, whatever. And throwing in, I mean, there's only so much time and throwing in half of Chronicles just with names. And man, that return of Christ stuff in the book of Revelation. Boy, that's got to be written when John hadn't slept enough. Listen, I, I love this book, and I'm not mocking it, but I'm, I'm telling you that this forced clarity that we develop, where we reduce the tensions of the Bible that keep it significant and strong and balanced, and where we erase all the mystery because we've got our system. It's not healthy. A culture of proposition, which leads us to a culture of sureness, inexorably. And I'll tell you now this, after 40 years of living in the church, I've never seen this not be true. Inexorably leads to a culture of evaluation and judgment. Judgment is not about seeing something or about discerning. It's adding meaning to what I've seen. Judging is establishing a personal view as a norm and applying it to others for personal gain under the cloak of righteous motive. It always involves violating a boundary. It assumes God's role. It is not discernment, but it is always punitive. It is non-relational. It ignores my own fallenness my own shortcomings, my limited perspective, my limited ability to affect any change. Judgmentalism at his heart is selfish. Garrison Keeler said, that great theologian, when people watch us too closely, it turns us into actors. We just sold our house in Portland, Oregon this last week, and I learned something. I learned that a homeowner looks at his house differently than a house inspector. I have here a searing indictment from the Owens Inspection Services by a man who I can only judge as demonic. There's not a page in this that would not send a chill down your spine, cause you not only to doubt whether you would ever sell your home, but question whether it wouldn't be just better for all humanity if it would bulldoze down and disappeared from civilization. We liked our house. It had its faults and shortcomings, but we loved the design and the location and the yard and we poured energy into it. The Bible says where your heart, your treasure is, where you're investing, your heart follows. And we enjoyed it. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I've got to get to that little, 
oh, that trim isn't quite right. We've got to get to that. And I, Really, that plastic Tupperware underneath that sink isn't the best. You see, when you and I start looking at each other as house inspectors, we may see the very same things as if we look at each other as a homeowner, but we'll see it in an entirely different context. The result of a judging culture is always picky, always assessing, always evaluating. Now, I'll tell you at a practical level why this is the problem. Because everybody has a list. You all have things that you prefer, things that irritate you, things that come out of your preferences and out of your strengths and out of your weaknesses and out of your baggage and out of your choices and out of your upbringing. We all have our lists. And if we go around assessing everybody on the basis of our list, let me show you mathematically what's going to happen. We run about a thousand people here at Journey. Let's just be, let's be gracious to ourselves and figure we all have a list of about 40 things. Now, let's just assume a few of those overlap, so let's cut it down. So we got a thousand people who have a list of 40 things apiece, so that's 40,000 things. And we're going to say there's some overlap, so we'll cut it in half and we'll say 20,000 things. So we're all bumping into each other with our lists accumulatively of about 20,000 things that really you shouldn't cross. Now let me ask you. If I've been through some struggles in life and I'm hurting and I come through that back door, who would want to walk into that kind of minefield? 20,000, and you know the thing about our lists? They're not visible. We don't put flags on top of them. We just let you know after you've done it. So we're going to step into this gymnasium, and there's going to be 20,000 hidden minds in here, and I'm going to, I've already beaten up enough. I've already got enough bruises from life. I don't need to tiptoe through some minefield. And if that's what church is, Give me ESPN. Now, what I've just described to you amazingly happens among good people who mean well. But we get ourselves into a system. And once that system starts working, let me tell you, it's not good news. And it doesn't help us grow. fact, if anything, it becomes toxic. And we for whom Jesus died leave his community wounded even more, not less. All right. Well, how are we doing so far? What I'm telling you now, actually, I don't ever get nervous speaking, but this is one of the most nervous things I've ever done in my life. This little thing is a result of 40 years in the church. And I almost quit altogether. 
I stopped going. I moved to England. I began to work on a Ph.D. for a year. And when I came back, I was just going to go into business. Not because I didn't like people in church. Most of my relatives are in church. But the gap between our rhetoric and what was actually real was so wide, I could, I could not look myself in the mirror and honestly say, I want to be part of that. I didn't mind if someone else wanted to be part of it. I believe in freedom of choice. I said, Go ahead. If, that, if it works for you, I'm glad for you. But I didn't want anything to do with it. Then I met with Brian Hopkins. I left that meeting thinking, even though I've not seen this much in 40 years in the church, this outfit might actually have a shot at it. Because there's another kind of culture. And we'll go through this really quickly. You've been so kind and just tracking with me. It's a culture of people. It doesn't mean there aren't ideas or propositions. But we lead with people. And this culture has three facets. It's a culture of relationships. Where when you walk in, our first interest is not what you believe... It is in your personal worth as someone created in the image of God. We are the prodigal son's father running to see his son. We are Joseph weeping when he sees his brother. We are the incarnation of Christ who identifies himself with us. And so when you come in the door, we are not saying, "Ah, are, are you us? But rather we are saying, welcome, we are you. That's the incarnation of Christ. It is the nature of God who Himself is relational in His Trinity, relating to Himself and even describing truth in personal relational models when He says, I am the truth. Jesus did not die for ideas. He died for people. You know, at 57, I'll tell you about being a parent at 57. When you get a group of parents in a room who are 57 and in their mid-50s, people who are part of the culture of the church, who know right from wrong, when they start talking about their kids, even though they're not confused about right and wrong, their voices drop. The tenderness comes into the room. When they talk about addictions and divorce, though they know everything about right and wrong, they live with broken hearts as if they were their children. That is a culture of relationship. And propositions kill us unless they live in that culture. And this culture of relationship, which generates warmth, is the kind of culture we see when Jesus meets Peter after that great betrayal. And he doesn't even bring it up. 
doesn't even talk to him about it. It is a culture in which you can breathe and you can experiment and you can try and fail because it carries with it aspects of safety and freedom, the two absolute essentials for a relational culture to work. And interestingly, this culture leads to a culture of action because the lover always wants to act on behalf of the loved. So my, uh, my wife Marcy went to a little jewelry party. And I, she came, yeah, I bought these earrings. Now nah, they weren't very much. Oh, I love this necklace. I love this, uh, this bracelet, but it, it was too much. I happened to know somebody who went, so I called them up and I said, uh, you happen to know what bracelet my wife tried on at that party? Unfortunately, they said, yes, I do. <laughs> so I said, now, now we've got a problem. I'd like to buy it for her for Valentine's, which we celebrated a couple days ago after the sale of our house. But I said, I'd like to buy it for her. But she does our books. And if I squirrel this money out, she'll know it's gone and she'll ask me where it is. So I can only like shuffle you like 40 bucks in cash every once in a while. But you know, like I got a cocaine habit on the side. <laughs> Now, in our years of marriage, we spent almost all the, the first 90% of it where I never had a secret because I did not keep one. So I'm perfecting that in these last years. So the, the, treat, the treat of buying her something and she doesn't know. So we're driving along in the car and I've actually got it in my little thing in the back. And she's wearing these earrings. She says, you know, that bracelet would have looked so nice with these earrings. Because <laughs> I knew... Action. Not piling up knowledge, but action. And you know the neat thing about action is God shows up at the point of action. He doesn't show up at the point of information. It's when you and I are out trying to do the things He talks about. He shows up at the point of action and He becomes real to us. And the reason sometimes... Our young people are not that convinced about God is because they hear the words. They don't see the stories. And the genius of the Gospel is that we have stories. You know, for 30 years of my Christian life, all I had was ideas. I didn't have stories. I told stories. I finally said, I can't stand it. I can't be telling other people's stories. If this thing is true, either I have stories or I'm going to stop talking about it. And uh, I, I have stories today that even I don't believe. And action, hear me, action always leads to mercy. Because when you're out acting, you become aware of how far you fall short and how much you need God and how much you need other people. So Paul said, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, is this all just my ideas? What does the Bible say? Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The law, proposition. And Jesus replied relationally, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second's like it. Love your neighbor as you would want to be treated. And all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we're going to finish up with this. So, so it's kind of like a recipe. I'm not talking about throwing out proposition. I love apologetics and throwing out, being sure about some things, throwing out discern, discernment. But I believe we've left some stuff out. You know, we can make some bread. I grew up in a German family. There was no such thing as a meal. It wasn't a meal if there wasn't bread on the table. And so you make some bread and you got some flour, you know, put a little of that. You're like the galloping gourmet. You know. Emerald. <laughs> yeah, a little uh, sugar and Yes, I got to put some salt in there, and hey, you know, that's okay. Put an egg, some that. Yeah, mix that up. But you know, if if you don't put all the ingredients in there that were meant to be, like if you leave out the yeast, you get this that Jamie made me. This is bread. You know, when we leave out relationship and mercy and action, this is what the church gets to be. Now, if you were out in a desert and you were starving to death, you could actually eat this and it might keep you alive. But if there were anything else on the menu, you would forego this because it's hard and brittle. It's not very appealing. I waited all morning to do that. But I went down to the little bread store just next to Safeway yesterday and I bought some bread. Some of it's missing. Bought some bread. This is called, uh, hala bread. It's sweet bread. Soft, it's moist. Why would I choose that if I can have this? See, at 57, one of the great drives of my life is to finish well. And for me, this stuff, this is where the rest of the years I have is going. Not because it's natural. All my natural strengths are analytic and strategic. My natural strengths all fall on the propositional side. Living this takes all the energy I have. But it's where all the life is. Well, I think that's enough. Why don't we put our things aside for just a minute? And would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for being so patient. Went about ten minutes longer than I should have. I, I just I appreciate your kindness in that. Maybe maybe our minds are still a little bit with the black and the white coat, and you're here today. You've always seen God as kind of a taskmaster and a judge 
But he's wanted to tell you today that he's relational, he's full of mercy, he wants to act in your life. And this morning you'd like to just peel off that black coat and say, I, I want to be rid of that. There's a burden of deeds connected with that. There's some shame and guilt connected with that. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Right where you're seated this morning, you can just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it took me this long. I'm thankful that you are so merciful to me. Would you forgive me and release me this morning and come into my life? Thank you for hearing my prayer. If you're praying that this morning, you'll pray it right now, right where you're seated. If you're, if you're praying that, nobody's looking around. We're not going to embarrass you, but it's such an important decision. With our heads bowed, would you just raise your hand and kind of make eye contact with me and say, I'm asking God to help me do that today, to take off that black coat. We're just going to wait for a moment. How about some of us? Yeah, I see that way in the back, over on the left. Thank you. That. Anybody else? And how about some of us who've been part of this kingdom outfit for a lot of years? But we've never trusted God enough to start peeling off that white coat. We're not even sure how to do it. And we don't have many cultures or environments where we even know how. But you want the authentic you to be interacting with the real Christ and the real world. You say, Lord, show me a first step in how I can be free of the white coat. Be the me you created me to be. If that's a prayer in your heart this morning, would you just, uh, with our heads bowed, just raise your arm, raise your hand, and yeah, I see that over here on the right. There's another one on the right. Thank you. A couple up in the front. The back on the right. Way in the back. You're in the middle. Yeah, yes. A number of us in the middle. Over on the left. Up here in the front. Way in the back. Over on the right. Thank you. Way to go. Lord, thanks for meeting with us today. Thank you for these lovely people.